Howdy, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Meta Ideological Politics. I'm your host, Ryan Nakata, and boy, do we have a doozy for you today. I'm joined by three titans of the meta slash sense-making web to discuss everyone's favorite new book, The Dawn of Everything. As many of you know, this book has created quite the splash in our communities. And as usual, polarization and vituperative clashes of all sorts have cropped up in the corner of the internet. And being the depraved mediator and conflict fetishist that I am has gotten me hot and bothered and itching to explore these debates further. What interests me most are the accusations flung at each other, namely the label ideological, implying we're projecting our biases, political agendas, conceptual frameworks, and other distorting heuristics onto the nebulous gestalt of human prehistory, in turn warping the facts to fit our preconceived notions. Interestingly enough, I haven't seen much contestation of the facts presented in the book themselves, but rather the conclusions people are drawing from them. So in this discussion, I'd like to explore how we can shed light on the subtle and not so subtle frameworks and narrative structures that shape how we make sense of this book and the relationship between facts and the frameworks themselves, which include how we reason from granular evidences to big picture meta-narratives and vice versa, and the myriad ways our personal biases and ideological leanings jump in to shape the picture. As Brendan said, we have ourselves a battle of meta-narratives and what better place to battle out the grand story of human civilization and on the meta-ideological politics podcast. Here's how we'll proceed. Each speaker will have 10 minutes to make an opening statement, giving their general take on the book. And once everyone has spoken, we'll glide into an extemporaneous battle royale format. Having myself just started the book, I plan on taking a backseat in this discussion, but plan on jumping in with some premeditated gotcha questions in the unfortunate event that things start going too smoothly. With that, welcome, gentlemen. Howdy. Good to be here. Hello. So, uh, Brendan, I want to start with you since you are new to this podcast. Uh, so, 10 minutes, the floor is yours. And if you want to include both your general take on the book and the kind of meta narrative conclusion that you're drawing yourself from reading it. Cool. Okay. Thanks. I have some scattered thoughts that I'll try to weave into a more or less well articulate narrative, which is in some ways what this is all about. Um, yes. So, um, so I've written a little, a couple pieces on the book so far, just sort of a, a couple initiate, initiatory passes at some of this. I think that um, you raise a great point about the, the focus so far that's been on ideology versus getting into some of the, the more granular evidentiary claims and seeing um, how valid or invalid those are. And I think that that's for a reason. I think that um, one first gets a sense of where a work is coming from and the sort of general uh, methodological uh, framework that an author or authors are using in order to help situate, um, well, to situate the work really. And so I feel like it's, it's, it's warranted, uh, I think, this uh, concern about ideological framing um, and that that's sort of a initial work that needs to be done up front. And then we can get into some of the evidentiary um, sort of uh, debates that might be there, which could be, which could be very rich. Um, it's also, yeah, well, I'll just say that up front. And so I think you did a good job framing why that's the case in terms of biases sort of directing the narrative rather than as we tend to assume the various data themselves sort of being abstracted into a, uh, a narrative that we are not imposing on them, but that the realities are sort of um, generating in, in, in a broad pattern. The way I was thinking about this and, and how I think the meta narrative 
issue here is playing out too is is about the issue of coherence and how we make coherent narratives out of out of materials just as a little backdrop here too and i'd like to you know i think it'd be valuable and interesting to see where we're all coming from with the text in terms of how we're how much familiarity to in terms of these sorts of works and what sort of broad field this would fall in in terms of anthropological uh, and ethnographic studies, but also synthetic sort of grand big history um, aggregations of anthropological data and things of that nature. So to that point, I'll just say up front that um, I don't claim any expert status in that field generally um, at all. Um, I, I mean, of course, in the sense that you're making a synthetic broad view picture of history, you're eschewing specialization at that point, and you're going to be uh, doing generalizer work in some capacity. Uh, my particular specialty is in ancient history as it's sort of located in the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman classical civilizations. I did my BA in classical civilizations. And um, so I have some familiarity with uh, the field generally of archaeology and anthropology and um, ancient history and prehistory. Um, now I did that, you know, 10, oof, 15 years ago at this point or so. So, you know, there's also a very important way in which there are claims about new evidence that are involved here. And so, but anyway, just to sort of situate where I'm coming at from this work uh, or coming into it with a particular lens, um, having done some general survey stuff in the sort of like dawn of history, cradle of civilization sort of materials. Um, and so in terms of that, this is obviously and very explicitly presenting a very different narrative from the one that, you know, my studies kind of presented and that is they admit sort of the consensus view um and um so that's my kind of way into this um and helps kind of frame a little bit of why i kind of take the taking the take that i do uh, but to return to the idea of coherence i just want to touch on this real quick because i think it's important that if we're taking this sort of big scale vision first and looking at the ideology first before we kind of get into the granular narratives here or the granular evidence uh, what the challenge here is one of, I'd say, resolution and how this impacts uh, the way that we coherently shape narratives. So if you want to think about two broad sort of heuristic approaches to looking at reality, uh, there is sort of a generalizing take and there's a particularizing take. There's sort of the re resolution of, of large and small. Um, and another way of thinking about this would be maybe imagine like sort of a, a, a data plot, right? Now you've got a bunch of individual data points that are sort of plotted and these, these, these are each an individual datum in a broader sort of data set. And so at that point, you can kind of engage data in different ways. You can generalize, which would be to say, well, is there a line of best fit that we can sort of map onto this? Is, is the data more or less telling a coherent tale? Um, that we can sort of abstract from it and sort of compress some of that, that noise into a, the, the basic sort of essential signal. That's sort of one way of going about it. Another way is particularizing each datum and sort of zeroing in and looking at each one. And, and then not only that, but even potentially focusing on outliers, things that don't necessarily fit that, that general line of best fit. So <clears throat> these, are, these are forms of resolution taking that can kind of zoom out and zoom in, and both of them have pros and cons. And so um, I think the, the cons of, of generalizing are that they can be reductive, 
They can be deterministic. They can be ultimately totalitarian in which you're sort of reducing too much of the specificity and you're sort of being moved along by these blocks of ideas rather than allowing the data to speak for itself. And similarly, there's a, there's a con of the particularizing approach, which is that you miss the forest for the trees. It's that you get a fragmented and an incomplete and an, in, well, an, an incoherent picture because there is no thing tying all the various data together. It's just sort of a scatter plot and there's no, nothing that's sort of emerging from it that gives it a coherence. And so in sort of Vervakian terms, I think you could look about this as trying to find optimal grip, which would be one way of, I think, what really valid and quality historiography is trying to do, which is letting the individual data points speak for themselves while also allowing them to reveal a, a broader generalizable picture. Now, tying this into ideology, this is where this becomes, I think, really interesting because I think it's not unfair to see as characteristic of say modernism, a generalizing tendency and of postmodernism, a very particularizing tendency. And so um, when you are doing historiography in a, through a sort of modernist lens, then there are certain, uh, there are certain uh, what's the word, drivers that, that lead to generalization, abstraction, the big picture takes. And one of the things that happened of course with postmodern historiography was to sort of push back against that and say, hey, wait a second, you know, for, and this is of course all set in political context for all the reasons why that played out in terms of the very real ways that, that modernist generalizing can lead to totalitarianism at a political level is a very real thing. So the postmodernist approach needed to focus on particularity, letting each individual think speak for itself and focusing on outliers on what's happening at the margins, not following the, the broad trend, but looking at, well, hey, how does this nuance uh, a, a generalized understanding? Now, last thing I'll say about this is that, um, so just to tie the fact that these generalizing particularizing approaches are both um, general tools in our tool belt for making sense of the world, but they also tend to play out in ideological frameworks and in cultural epochs more broadly, and that, I would argue, and here's all, I'm kind of running out of time, so I'll just finish up with this, a, a kind of spark notes version of, I think one of my main takeaways is that this book is certainly coming from particularist outlier driven analysis um, that I think people rightly associate with a more kind of postmodern lens and the associated, the associated ideological framings that often come with a postmodernist particularizing lens, such that ultimately one of the main takeaways of the book is basically that the pattern of history is that there is no pattern, that the law of, of, uh, of history is that there are no laws. And of course, the idea of law, the lack of laws plays very much into another set of kind of political ideologies of the authors, which I'm sure we'll be talking about more. But I just wanted to throw all that out there because I feel like this is one of the one of the big things that I um, find about this book as being uh, problematic in terms of how I think about quality historiography, which is more about finding the optimal grip rather than taking an extreme sort of radical particularist outlier driven focus. So um, that will we can hopefully get in some of that. That's my first, uh, my first go here. Fantastic. Jeremy, I'll turn to you. All right. So. <clears throat> Yeah. So, so okay. Let, let's see. We got ten minutes here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So generally, my some of my context and background for this book is I'm coming from more of a sort of Gibsonian approach to the whole history of consciousness, 
Um, so, so some of the the claims the book is making, generally speaking, are much more resonant with my own way of thinking about the history of consciousness, even though that's not what this book is talking about. It's sort of giving us a different kind of big picture history. Um, and maybe to kind of start off, I'd push back a little bit with saying that I, I don't necessarily think this is more about particulars and outlier positions. I think the book is doing two things. Um, the first is uh, drawing from the last 20, 25, 30 years of more contemporary archaeological and anthropological data, which is slowly aggregating towards a new consensus, which is not something that I think is particularly outside the realm of, of uh, what your average anthropologist would claim. Like, okay, well, they don't really believe in a stadial model, et cetera. Things are much more complex. I mean, generally speaking, that's sort of the in vogue turn in academia at the moment with historiography and archaeology and anthropology is that things are more complex than we imagined. Things go, go further back than we imagined. Things are not as linear as we would, would have imagined previously. And generally speaking, the archaeological and anthropological evidence does point to that. But that's not just what the book is doing, The Dawn of Everything. It's taking a kind of emerging paradigm shift, generally speaking, um, which I don't think is too outlier at this point and drawing some conclusions and creating a kind of big picture narrative. And the work so, is, is interesting in this sense in that it's transdisciplinary in that we have an archeologist and anthropologist that are collaborating with each other to give a different image of history, which nevertheless does look a lot less linear than we imagined it to be previously or is commonly understood to be, um, uh, I don't know, mythologized previously by the Pinkers or the, um, uh, the Jared Diamonds of the world, right? These are th those are the kind of narratives they're kind of going after and saying, hey, nobody's even talking about that anymore in anthropology or archaeology. There's a lot more complexification that's occurred. So I would just say that I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an outlier position. I do think it's a bit more granular in that sense of looking at specificities and contrary evidence. Let's say, um, uh, you know, drawing from James C. Scott's work about about how agrarian societies did not necessarily create a coercive state, but they, they existed for a few thousand years, right? Without that, this is not necessarily outlier work, but I think the political project of the book and the overall meta framing of the book, which is a big picture image of humanity as uh, basically the three freedoms that they conclude with, right? Like we have these sort of primordial freedoms they can draw from all of these examples of social morphology and plasticity that the, the ability to freedom to move, the, the freedom to disobey, and the freedom to create a retrans or transform society. And they, they think, generally speaking, that this sort of makes up most of our history, the ability to kind of shift back and forth in a very conscious, um, socially conscious kind of way, different forms of social organization. And these are their conclusions they draw from. And they certainly take more anarchist and, and more kind of leftist positions towards things in terms of critiquing the pinkers of the world and the, uh, and, and the, uh, the kind of uh, problems of modernity, et cetera. And we can kind of say like, those are the two layers here, right? There's the actual evidence of seasonal dualism, um, uh, which are not just anomalies, but kind of a growing sense of complexity of our, our prehistory and then their own political project, right? Which I think is more geared toward uh, a more a more left-leaning and anarchist view of history. And certainly that's always been the case with Graeber and the democracy uh, project and and so on. So so that's kind of like the framing there. And just as more context, like I think most of us here, I don't, I don't have an anthropology background or archaeology background. 
uh, my wife does with, with anthropology. So we've had some interesting conversations about, about uh, these readings, but um, I have a background in consciousness studies. So this is definitely a subject I think we're all reading about all the time in terms of um, you know, the dawn of humanity, the origins and history of consciousness. How did human beings evolve through these different great epochs of, of history and social organization? Is it linear or less linear, right? And I think my takeaway from this book is it's really emphasizing the nonlinearity of history, the ways in which we've moved back and forth with this greater complexity. Um, that this is kind of, um, despite our particular ori uh, orientations around politics, um, despite that, the book is saying history is more complex. It's far less linear than we imagined. There's way more nuances and plasticity that's going on that sort of challenges a, a, a kind of stadial orientation of moving from step to step to step in a kind of neat way, or even a kind of um, uh, back and forth sort of way, right? There's there's examples of societies that have um, that are socially moving alleged up and down stages of, of uh, you know, from bands to, to tribes to chiefdoms to states, right? There are examples of indigenous societies that had some kind of course of state. There are examples of agricultural societies, again, without a course of state. So the fluidity and complexity here is certainly being presented, but it's being presented in, in a big picture view of the human being as a socially um, uh, dynamic and free being, right? Imagining and reimagining ourselves with our material histories at, at hand. So, so that's the big picture. It's just not looking for a direction necessarily. Um, and I do have some pushback, perhaps a little bit on, around the question of why did we get stuck, uh, which is what they ask about and they comment on social inequality, et cetera. Um, I think there's, there's some things we can actually say about that more so than maybe the authors were, were putting forward in the text. Um, and there are some, some ways in which I feel like the text could be um, opened up more dynamically to, let's say, our field with uh, um, William Irwin Thompson's work on cultural ecologies, for instance, or uh, let's say Gepser's work, which go, you know, those kind of depthful questions about why did we go this path? Why did civilization go down this direction? Um, and what does that particularly mean for the big picture, right? Those things, I think, could be addressed better. Um, but again, I think as generally speaking, the book kind of blew open all of these possibilities. It presents an image of a dynamic, um, complex history and a dynamic and complex uh, human being, right? So that, I'm going to close there just to kind of say this is, this is what the book is doing for me. It's really opening up um, uh, a conversation about the shifting uh, paradigm of, of our history. And last but not least, Layman. Well, uh, it's my understanding that Jeremy Johnson is a depraved Marxist radical who holds nothing sacred and who sees in this text another vicious revisionist weapon in his campaign against Western civilization and the unsuspecting community of developmental stage theories in an insurrectionary campaign for some kind of mad directionless planetary utopianism. And Brendan Graham Dempsey, if that is his real name, seems to be some sort of proto-fascist neo-colonial hyper-conformist religious fanatic who hates women and will stop at nothing to use academic nitpicking to protect white Judeo-Christian values and the normative status of a developmental narrative that leaves the savages in the dust. Hopefully I will be able to provide a single sane voice and some much needed balance among these two rabid extremists whose views frankly put us all in serious jeopardy. <laughs> uh, that said, uh, I enjoyed this book a lot. I think it has three goals and does all of them pretty well. 
It is not the big book of official integral historiography, nor is it the new gospel of anti-developmentalism. Uh, I think the Davids are simultaneously trying to provide an updated history sourced in the richness of new discoveries and some alternative theorists, while also doing some philosophical anthropology by trying to capture and present certain principles that they find repeatedly through their lensing of this enriched historical data set. And they're also quite transparently trying to connect this, connect the richer social variations of human history with their own political commitments, which I think quite sensibly involve a serious critique of the ethos of modern political economies whose accumulating problems uh, won't be dealt with unless we open ourselves imaginatively to the reality and normalcy of different ways of organizing our cultural activities. There are some phrasings and some dismissals and trivializations in the text that maybe make my delicate meta sensibilities wince a little bit. But on the whole, I think our culture war trained ears tend to exaggerate the significance of these rhetorical gestures, uh, assuming maybe too quickly that they are windows into already well-defined paradigms that we have to provide a quick thumbs up or thumbs down for. And I think that's unfair to the deepest insights and the most important conclusions that the authors are trying to bring forward. I think uh, a charitable reading should appropriate their rich topology of social history and use it to challenge forth a more complex, uh, hopefully more accurate and more humane version of historical developmental philosophy. Uh, but that's also not the only useful thing you could do with a book like this. You can also, for example, place it in the context of other histories and try and build up a meta historiographical vision. That's important. You could look closely and sift around in the details for that uh, dotted fault line that might indicate where passages are following more to the postmodern or more to the metamodern side. Those are good things to do. And all of these responses, I think, are uh, deeply complementary. Um, but in addition to all of that, for me, there's another interesting phenomenon that goes on with this book. Uh, which is it and some other texts reveal what seems like an underlying polarization within the liminal web of our overlapping communities, right? Whether it's Graeber or Nora Bateson, uh, some integralites and metamoderns have a strong immediate sense of vindication when they hear these critiques, uh, and some have a strong immediate feeling of suspicion and weariness and counter critique, you know, and, and why is that? Is it because the community that purports to be second tier is actually staffed with a lot of postmodernists? Is it because people who share a cognitive worldview still differ considerably in their emotional, ethical, or social intuition development? Uh, or is it because something basic like a left-right polarization is present here as it is everywhere? So I think Ryan's doing us all a service, providing a space for us to dig into some of those kinds of questions. Uh, where am I coming from? I'm... Uh, a hetero cisgendered Canadian male of mixed European Moorish and Neanderthal descent, currently making an insufficient amount of money. By temperament, I tend to assume that everyone is actually getting along somehow, even if it doesn't look that way. By training, I tend to be charitable and non-reactive in my readings. I'm spiritually oriented. I have my own complex developmentalism model. I would say I'm a meta-progressive with strong, sometimes idiosyncratic conservative sympathies. Uh, I do think the scale and tempo of contemporary accumulating problems is not being addressed at all 
unless we start making changes that will feel like they are too big and too fast. And if we're not doing that, we're basically being passive radicals, consoling ourselves with moderatism or nostalgia or some kind of strange woke hysteria. Um, so I, all of that and the deep desire for the overlapping wisdom community spaces to be more practical, more embodied, more project oriented, more survival oriented. Uh, all of that is the way that I situate my reading of the text and the way that I will be trying to distort the meaning of this book to serve those particular ends. Thank you, Layman. That was probably the hardest I've ever laughed uh, on this podcast. I had to, a lot of energy into containing myself and trying not to shed too many tears. Um, so that was great. Now let's, for this next, I don't know, 45 minutes or so, I know there are some disagreements or pushbacks. I wanted to kind of open the space for you all to explore that with each other. I know that none of you agree with each other 100%, and maybe we can start by teasing out what those distinctions and perspectives are, and then maybe organically move towards a point of convergence. Um, and then to end it all, I have a challenging question for each of you. So just opening the floor here, whoever wants to take it and maybe push back or explore a difference with someone said in their opening take that if that's all right with folks um that was great and i love this by the way this is so rich and enjoyable and necessary and it's really wonderful to lay all this out on the table and see each other face to face and have these kinds of conversations and do all that and anyway so i just it's wonderful um i wanted to throw out uh one of the things for me that so jeremy you brought up the the linear at one point you said is it linear or less linear the question about human history and human origins um, I think that's a great way of, of framing this. I think though, um, be, well, so one of my concerns and interests here uh, is the issue of straw manning where, um, where a certain um, view of something is maybe presented in a, in, a, in a low resolution, more kind of caricatured way that then becomes easy to sort of undermine and knock down and then present an alternative and a contrast to. Um, it's important because I, I, in my reading of the book, um, I would argue that I see a lot of that at play, which again, historiographically makes me a little uneasy, especially when you're encountering a work that's uh, presuming to add complexity and nuance to a, a conversation. And if you're familiar with a certain subset of the data, for, for example, and you realize that this isn't getting an, an entirely fair treatment, then that kind of has a cascading impact on how you view the rest of, of the argumentation that goes on. And so I think it's important to be able to avoid that. Of course, steel manning being the alternative or titanium manning and, and the idea of being able to present, um, present frameworks here in their uh, most robust form. And so one of the things too, why I feel like this is really important is because I, I, I wonder very much if there's not just a lot of shadow boxing going on that when these, these fault lines emerge, it's sort of like there's a projection in a, in, a, in a straw manning, probably inadvertently almost all the time of assuming what another person's position is and then immediately presuming, well, that can't be the case. And so, um, so for, and, and okay. Uh, so the question of, is it linear or less linear uh, to, to get into that? I feel like this is a great, way to frame some of this because I think there's sort of a straw man version of the developmentalist approach to some of these issues that sort of like 
oh, the basic narrative is that humanity progressed in a purely linear, you know, stadial process from, you know, simple savagery to complex uh, civilization or something. And, um, and while certainly some people may hold that kind of view of these sorts of thing of these sorts of things, I, I would say that that is not in any way sort of the the standard approach in the communities that we're all sort of uh, interacting with, whether it's these integral circles or metamodernism. There's a great deal of uh, when you read authors like Wilbur or the Hanzi books, ways of trying to bring in all sorts of potential axes of nuance and 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 difference and possibility and ways that uh, a whole number of complex variables are interacting in nonlinear ways, such that um, when sort of developmental stage theory models of human history are, are sort of rebutted, whether that's just with a simple stage theories or BS, or um, basically there are no, you know, meaningful applications of stage theories, which is, I think, the one of the main premises of this book. Um, it's for me, sort of a, a knockdown of a straw man. Um, and I would argue that it's very possible to engage, as I think Lehman talked about having a very complex developmental model where um, your level of generalization is of an appropriate amount that you are able to appreciate the patterns uh, while not losing sight of all the outliers and, and effectively accounting for those divergences and those, those, uh, those alternative histories and those, uh, possibilities of, of human potential and, and human organization. Um, and that any developmental model worth its salt would be doing that. So I just wanted to throw that out there in the way of, of thinking about, is it linear or not? For me, I feel like it's sort of a red herring. I, I, when, as long as there's a sufficient degree of depth and nuance to developmental argumentations about, about human history, um, I would presume that there's not any sort of simple linearity being proposed. And therefore, if the, if the argument goes, well, see, this book is saying it's not a linear progression, therefore, yeah. So that's my basic argument there. Um, and it, again, for me, this is about coherence. It's about being able to find these lines of best fit um, that do propose. So for all you, I'll end with this sort of analogy. If you think about like a galaxy forming, right? Or the, the the possible permutations that are that exist when matter coalesces throughout the universe, right? You might get binary stars. You might get certain kinds of galaxies that you know have black holes in the center and of different sizes and stars of different sizes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the possibilities are just you look out in the sky and you see them all. But we're still able to sort of abstract from this broad panoply of of, of variability certain laws of physics certain general trends of complexification. And so for me, it's about maintaining the options of diversity while still finding that line of best fit that can account for it. And so that's why I feel like if we have too simplistic and caricatured version of what a developmental model of stage theories look like, then we're not really undoing that at all. And we're sort of speaking past each other. So I wanted to throw that into the mix. Yeah, this jump in if that's good with you, Ryan or, and Lehman. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I generally agree. I think uh, any kind of approach, any kind of big picture history approach or evolution of consciousness approach has to find that middle balance. Um, but the question is, right, and you, you mentioned this yourself earlier, just about um, 
you know, taking the too broad of approach, right, is uh, the critique of that is it doesn't look at the particulars and it kind of forces things to look a particular way, right, about going in a certain direction, or let's say this can't exist at this stage, it, it really doesn't come online until this point in history, if there's a general progression, progression, if there's a general, um, uh, let's say, developmental logic, and then we get enough contrary evidence that says, well, this is sort of against the developmental logic. This couldn't have appeared without this being in place first, right? Which I know is not, it's not straw manning because it's part of the way Wilbur and many of the developmentalists argue. And they even kind of make these distinctions and say with Wilbur's pre-trans fallacy, for instance, right? I mean, the whole thing is about like what comes before versus what comes after and possibility and not conflating the two. So the directionality is what's being questioned here. And I don't think that um, uh, asking for or pointing out complexity and saying like, well, here's a society that does seem to be able to um, coalesce and aggregate around what we would consider to be a state, which happens later on but this is happening in a, in a completely agricultural-less society, hunter-gatherer, hunter-foraging, capable of doing that or switching back and forth. I think there is a level of complexity in there that is um, challenging these stage theories in a way that is authentically complex enough to say, well, maybe the general shape of how we're creating those sort of stadial theories needs to be more dynamically accounted for. And maybe that's not, uh, you know, to be, to be clear too, I don't know if I don't think Graeber and Wengro are really saying that. They're not really trying to argue for a more complex meta theory of human consciousness evolution. They're just sort of painting this much more complex picture of, of our political and social histories. Um, I think as a, as an this is sort of our conversation right amongst the integral metamodern liminal groups about you know where um, how how useful is stage theory. Um, how straw man versus how steel man can we really get when some of the some of the big claims um, are being contested, right? Even with the nuance and the perpendicularity and different lines of development and states versus stages, there's a lot of complexity that those models certainly bring in. But there's also these generalizations that they do continue to work with. Um, that I do think that again, some of these new histories are are challenging quite a bit and would. Um, would would benefit us by looking at those complexities and going, okay, does developmental logic work like that? Or do we need to kind of rethink how that general shape of uh, consciousness unfoldment occurs? And uh, just to kind of add the loop back as a final note uh, into context for me, um, you know, a, a model like the Gibsarian approach, which is a bit more rhizomatic and it's in a kind of mutational model, um, to me, it's like very, very compatible with something that uh, Graeber and Wenger are doing here, right? Because it's it does not relying on that kind of developmental logic to talk about consciousness unfoldment or efflorescence, where I think, again, certain theoretical approaches in our field do. They do require that developmental logic to, to make it all kind of work. And again, they're very sophisticated and robust, but there's different premises. Um, and I do think texts like this and the actual history like this are are challenging for something different here, right? There's a, there's the nonlinearity isn't being accounted for and that they're talking about here, and it shouldn't be strawmanned as saying like, well, we have complexity in our models, so there's something interesting going on there. Um, so I'd like to see more of that, right? I think that I think that would be the more productive um, and constructive conversation to kind of go, well, what needs to be revised in these models, if anything, or how, what is a response to those kinds of more complex dynamical views of history and social evolution.
Yeah, it strikes me there's two there's two issues around the models, and one is around their structure, and the other is how people hold them. And around the structure, there's there's a lot of opportunity for new information to come forward, often sourced in uh, uh, outliers and particular details that allow us to challenge those models and or adjudicate between different models. The other problem, and this goes to what Brendan was saying, is like a more of a pedagogical problem, which is even if we have good models, um, what people receive of those models is often much more simplistic and fragile than the models themselves. And that leads people to be in a position where they might hear a seemingly contrary picture piece of information and just throw the model out and think the models don't work anymore because what they understood of the model was very weak. It also leads to, um, you know, the kind of classic genocidal dangers of people having a very simplistic version of a model and a, deploying it in a way that's atrocious for other people. So I think we need to be looking both at how these things challenge the model structure itself and also how they um, point out the difficulty in actually getting people to understand the richness of any model, especially models of developmental complexity. Uh, and how do we how do we improve the models and make them less simple? It's got to be some kind of mix between necessary generalizing overviews, which is what human beings have to rely on, and this constant digging for new information in the variations and the particulars and the outliers, because that's where we're going to get the data that um, the overviews have to accommodate in order to be valid overviews. Um, I would say to an earlier point, um, I'm not sure this book is is opposed to meta narratives or generalizations. I think it, it's telling a developmental story in a specific way. And I think it might be part of the advancing edge of what the developmental community could call green if they wanted to. I think green is still young, it's still alive, it's still building itself up. And it's not necessarily the case that will always look like it is uh, opposed to big pictures. I think it's putting together its best big picture and we're seeing the leading edge of that. Uh, another thing that popped up for me was um, it's very important to distinguish the difference between, say, linear and nonlinear from the difference between patterned and non-patterned, right? And when we say something is not linear, we're meaning it doesn't have a very simplistic structure. That doesn't mean there's no sequences or even no dependent sequences. It doesn't mean there's no order or no patterning to it. It just means the range of patterning we're looking at can't be a simple number line or you know factory promotion model of what those things are but it still leaves open a ton of room for there to be patterning and dependent sequences yeah i i agree with all that um i that's a good point about patterns versus linearity and um something to keep in mind so probably uh a better use of language for me in thinking about these things is seeking the patterns to to historical uh changes um though a developmental pattern is of a certain structure which one could argue has a, a, a an element of linearity to it even if that is a, a a linearity that is complex and whatnot i wanted to throw this in too because of layman with something you said which is very much the way that i look at this which is that you can take this book as its own expression of an idea and engage with it individually 
um, and try to see what sort of analysis it's providing. But you can also put this book into conversation with other books making different kinds of arguments to do a proper meta-analysis. And that is what I think would be helpful here. So while, while I do believe that this book skews in the direction of particularization and sort of uh, a, a, a sort of a meta-narrative of no meta-narratives or a, a, the law is no law account of things, um, I think that in the, in the meta-analytical analysis that needs to be done, this is a very valuable resource in that broader project. Um, it is an instance of particularity. Well, how do I put this? Um, so in doing a meta-analysis, you also want to find in, in, in finding the abstractions or the patterns in the different, in the different uh, analyses themselves, um, as it were. So it, this, need, this, account, this form needs to be brought into a meta-analytical account, I guess is what I'm getting at. And so I also don't in any way want to suggest that like this book is trash or anything like that. It's a very valuable and important book. Um, even if primarily its value comes in an ecological context of other historical analyses that it can help sort of counterbalance. Um, and I just wanted to make that point too. Um, I I'm curious, I I I'll just throw this out there. I think it would be a fascinating sort of experiment to ask metamodernists or integralists to describe in five minutes, let's say what their conception of you know, developmental models is. Um, because, because I, I, I wonder about the variability of how, of how high or low resolution that would be expressed. And I think it would be really helpful because when I think about these things, I tend to use a Wilbur or a Gebser or someone who does have a lot of nuance and refinement and complexity in their articulation of an idea as sort of my base point of like, oh, when we're talking about these things, we're talking about this, which is why I'm often sort of taken aback and confused when people are saying stage theories are so unnuanced and, and, and highly linear and sort of, you know, crude. And, and so I think that in that pedagogical sense that you're referring to, there is a distinction to be made between sort of the best presentation and of the most complex and nuanced model versus how those get um, deployed and interpreted amongst, you know, reception communities. So also something that's been very important, I think, to keep in mind that I need to do more so as I think about these things and have these conversations is that we're not just dealing with, say, Wilbur's model, we're dealing with everyone's conception of what Wilbur's model might be. And that could be shockingly different if we were to actually do sort of that kind of an experiment and see how much of the nuance is retained in sort of how people would understand these things. So um, a lot of that's coming up for me in these conversations is, and I'd love to be able to do some work so that we can really home in on what are the true points of, of potential disagreement rather than uh, where are we talking past each other? Yeah, I'll just jump in and, and mention um, like some of the the details of this text, which I think are worth going into, and if not here, then part of this emergent conversation. Um, the the critique of uh, the indigenous critique of modernity is interesting, and, and it's the it's the point where I've actually heard the most, for me anyway, understandable critiques by historians or or um, specialists in in uh, in the Enlightenment period. Um, who push back on the book a little bit and say uh, that it, it's a little bit overplayed how much the indigenous critique actually helped to shape modernity and, and uh, the enlightenment period. Um, 
and I think that's fair, right? I, I think what they are doing is really advocating for indigenous voices and scholarship in this book. And I, I can understand why they're doing that, but I can also understand some of the pushback by, by historians who are saying this isn't exactly accurate or there's, there's, um, there's a lot of interpretation with how, how, um, how influential particular texts or stories about, um, uh, let's say, Candorank, uh, right? Candorank had with with Westerners, et cetera. So, so there's some conversation for debate in there, I think. Um, generally speaking, I, I, however, I do think that this conversation of indigenous scholarship, speaking back to modernity, is, is a good one. I think they've opened up a conversation that could be very productive and constructive. And as part of, as you're saying, as part of this larger ecology of, of um, the social turn toward uh, toward indigenous voices right now it's, it's kind of something that is uh, very contextually appropriate with everything going on politically and socially. Um, the the other possibility for us as sort of integral meta modern oriented thinkers and sort of um, just has been it's been in my mind recently. Lene Rachel Anderson's framing of these different epistemes, right? The indigenous, the pre modern, modern, post modern. And it really is in this context on the indigenous critique kind of bringing in these different voices to be in dialogue with these different epistemes, right? The book is really good at that. It's kind of saying even that the way we've divided these epistemes is, is probably more fluid than we imagined. And there's ways in which we might find these other um, stages or structures or centers of gravity or epistemes uh, showing up in other cultures that we imagine that they weren't possible or didn't unfold yet, right? So again, that there's more nuance and fluidity and complexity that I think it's doing there and it opens up possibilities for us. Um, and then in terms of the complex history and, and stadial theory, uh, the, I mean, it's specifically, if we're gonna be fair to the book and what they're arguing, they're really going after um, uh, admittedly themes that have been addressed by say Wilbur and Hansi, right? About um, dominator hierarchy versus natural hierarchy. Um, the bo both authors and scholars have critiqued uh, 1800s stadial theory as sort of you know a bad form and bad approach, and there's more complexity to it. So that that's certainly fair. And then the book is going after that, but it's also going after what is appropriately um, uh, still a kind of popularized by Francis Fukuyama and Steven Pinker, et cetera, in, in sort of the general public discussion about how we moved from bands to tribes, et cetera. So, so they're really kind of saying like that didn't, that doesn't exist, right? That there's actually much more complexity there. Um, so how much Wilbur, Hansi, et cetera, want to address that and respond to it or feel like they've already done it is kind of an interesting question. Um, the evolutionist models, uh, I, I think, do require, even when we're looking at somebody like Wilbur, who kind of creates the grand synthesis and says, okay, we moved up through these general stages, but there's a lot of complexity. Um, that's the question of, well, how much is, how much complexification is uh, of, of um, let's say the current research, the current paradigm, the emergent anthropology and archeology, span um, does it challenge it sufficiently to need to reimagine that general consensus? Or does that, does that area need to be reworked in terms of how we imagine developmental logic unfolds. That's where I'm interested in, like that's the nuance I think that would be very intriguing to kind of unpack. Um, the last thing would just be in that spirit. I think the strongest evidence they're drawing from are anthropology and archeology span in terms of what they talk about with seasonal dualism, social plasticity and different forms of social experimentation that don't 
uh, neatly striate or stratify as much as we imagined, even with our even with our comp complex models. And that's sort of the claim I'm making. Like the complexity of the models still have this striation, and that's exactly what I think the best evidence that Graeber and Wenger are drawing from are challenging. Um, for us, it doesn't take away the possibility um, of uh, the evolution of consciousness or the emergence of consciousness. Uh, but again, it challenges how we might uh, imagine that actually unfolding or how effective developmental logic is for, for being an accurate description of that process. Um, so yeah, that's right here. Yeah, I like a lot of that, Jeremy. Um, I think there's some real, uh, there's some different approaches if we were to set ourselves the task of imagining a more adequate developmentalism, right? And one of those approaches is what if we were starting fresh right now with everything people currently know, rather than starting with what we knew in the 1990s or the 1950s or something like that? And it's really important to ask that question because it might look very different if we started fresh with our full contemporary data set. Another question is, how do we think outside of the ideological enclosure of whatever we happen to be embedded in? Because even if you started now, if you were, say, let's just use the straw man of Steven Pinker. If you were Steven Pinker, you'd probably end up with a fairly linear liberal modernist success story, even if you started with all the contemporary data. So there's a, there's a challenge in this book, which is in some ways the classic postmodernist challenge, but it's to critique and think outside of the enclosure of modernity and to ask ourselves to what degree the system that we're embedded in sets up the intuitions we have about what is a sensible reading of the data. And that's a really important question because it may be that a huge number of problematic things are arising from the particular ideological enclosure that we're all currently sharing. And I think uh, for me, I thought a lot about variations of modernity when I read this book, because one way from a uh, integral meta-modern kind of perspective when you think about this indigenous critique of modernity, which is really very carefully spelled out, it's only some of the nations <laughs> on the North American continent who engaged in this discourse with the Europeans and seem to be presenting a lot of the virtues that we think of as the virtues of the European Renaissance and Enlightenment. And so that opens up the possibility that those nations are themselves a form of modernity that there are people who are acting from the values we associate with modernity and may well be developmentally on the far side of something like the dogmatic kingdom agrarian cultures that we look back on and think we're on the far side of now, right? So was there a North American modernity? Was there a dozen other kinds of modernity coming and going at different phases that we could learn from and help negotiate the situation that we're in rather than imagining that the form of modernity we have is the destiny of history and a trap we can't get out of except for incrementalist tinkering. Yeah, just to add one, one caveat with that too, and in a total agreement, Lehman, um, the, the useful thing about this book and a lot of the research that, that this book is aggregating is, is really kind of going, huh, okay, so the alleged things that only Western Enlightenment did, we find variations or versions of those in other cultures. So it almost fractalizes this developmental map and, and, and um, almost regionally locates it and situates it in more, again, regional histories that are more specific, more contextual and say, okay, so they had their own kind of version of modernity or, and they used it differently. Um, it doesn't necessarily, 
remove the possibility that these are forms of emergence of, of social complexity in societies, but it kind of relativizes and pluralizes or decenters um, the way those emerge and the novel kind of forms of combination that they do emerge, right? So then we can have a much more pluralistic conversation about emergence, right? Um, that doesn't narrativize or centralize necessarily um, uh, Western enlightenment, so yeah. Yeah, I, I think all that's really helpful and important too. One of the things that I think this book does a really good job of in terms of genuinely, I think, undermining a premise of, of at least the Wilberian model is the tying of uh, development to modes of production. And I talked about this in one of the reviews I made, but being able to separate those two, I think is really important. And one thing I think that we need to keep in mind as if we are setting, if if folks are interested in pursuing the task of trying to more adequately refine developmental models, I think one thing that needs to be uh, better parsed is the separation of technology from cultural development. I mean, um, the notion that sort of modernity is inextricably linked to industrialization could be a great uh, avenue of interrogation for the necessity of that, right? Because if we just uh, assume that association, then we assume that, oh, yes, you know, as you advance into formal operational thinking, then your mind will become more empirical and scientific, and you'll make industrialized things. And, you know, that's inevitable. But it's, I think, one of the things that was really um, important to point out in this book that they do is, is that there were indigenous communities with, um, you know, all the rhetorical, argumentative, back and forth, reason, debate going on. Um, and that's happening in the absence of, you know, all the, the trappings of European industrialized modernization. So I think to Lehman's point, there are localized forms of modernization. And this ties in, I think, with a point that Zach Stein makes, which is that you can separate development, sort of cognitive development from skill capacity. And you can unequivocally see that there are um, asymmetric capacities between these two emerging, whatever you want to call them, blocks or civilizations, right? And to the point where, you know, intense high tech kinetic warfare is something that the Europeans are bringing as a capacity into the, into the not the conversation, but into the situation where uh, there is an, an asymmetric quality that leads to, you know, the, the way that, you know, the genocidal basically path unfolded in the Americas, right? And so to be able to differentiate um, the ways that sort of cognitive skills can be applied to certain kinds of uh, technological development, I think is important um, because arguably, and I think this could be a really interesting and fruitful area of exploration for where a lot of overlap could be found and some synthesis here is that I think arguably the civilization that metamodernists are trying to build is a lot more like indigenous society than it is like anything, you know, going on in some cyberpunk dystopian hypermodernist, you know, world, right? Where there is deeper connection with the earth and with spirituality and with community, et cetera, et cetera. And we would view that as development, right? But there's a sort of kind of eschewing of certain kinds of modes of production, certain kinds of technologies, or at least a better way of harmonizing these that is possible. And I think that these are ways of thinking about these sorts of models that could be more fruitful, um, on, you know, rather than kind of bifurcating into a, uh, you know, a kind of either or about these sorts of things. So um, those are some thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, Ryan, I don't know if you wanted to jump in, but just in agreement there in resonance. Uh, generally speaking, I think uh, the, the, the association with 
uh, again, the industrial revolution and runaway technology and technological complexity and secularity, like they, that, that those have to come together with modernity is what's really being challenged by, by all of this evidence. So, and as you said, Zach Stein mentions this uh, as well, that, that uh, there are forms of development, like we are developing, but it's a sort of runaway asymmetric form where, okay, we have high complexification of technology, runaway economic technologies in the form of industrial globalized capitalism, et cetera. Certainly those have complexified, but there may be other forms or other ways in which complexification happens, right? So the morphology or the shape of consciousness evolution is probably much more pluralistic with different variations of complexification, things going one way or another way or combining in different forms this way and going in a different form this way. Um, so again, the, the shape is there, right? The, the patterning that we like to look at is certainly there, but just the, the kind of processual and complex dynamical realities of, of these, these histories are far more localized and specific. Um, and then again, I think, you know, that potentially can deepen and um, make more robust the models. And then the general principles and conclusions we draw from uh, those patternings might be a bit different. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there. I don't know, Ryan, if you wanted to jump in or keep, keep talking. Yeah, I wanted to go back to something that you were saying, Brendan, a couple things actually, right? And one is this the notion that, and we see this all too often in today's culture wars, right? That one side or the side making the critique is actually strawmanning uh, the thing it's critiquing and committing the strawman fallacy, right? Where you're debunking claims that, or perspectives or positions people don't in reality hold, or at least it doesn't capture the nuance of how people are actually thinking about it. And then claiming to present the alternative perspective, which is not actually debunking because it's just debunking a, a straw man, right? And so I, I want to have a conversation about like what you, what more specifically, what do you think were some straw mans made in that book, right? Whether it's of Pinker of the more classical, you know, Western developmental civilizational perspective. Um, and I know you talked about these in some of your articles and kind of wanted to see, you know, if there was any pushback or disagreement or agreement with what you felt like the, the Davids were, might have been straw manning. That's a really good question. Thanks. So I, I mean, I, I write the word straw man in the margins every few pages in here. Um, uh, example would be, there, you know, he says, uh, or they say, well, you know, they used, people used to think that basically there was just this 200,000 year period where not much was happening. And now we know that that's not the case at all. And things are much more interesting. And it's sort of like, okay, you set that up as there was this stupid, un, you know, simplistic way of thinking about it. But now you're presenting this sort of nuanced alternative, but it's like, who's saying that nothing happened in 200,000 years of human evolution? It's, it's just, it's like a, it's your shadow boxing with a, you know, we're going to, you're setting yourself up to make a claim that, you know, I think no one, certainly no anthropologists or archeologists would say nothing was happening in that period. And, and things like that occur throughout. Um, I mean, if you want, I could try to draw up a couple of lists at some point that might be helpful. Um, and I think that again, similarly, the whole developmental issue is sort of, very much framed as a, as a, well, we now know because these things can uh, occur in, in different forms than hitherto was part of the main archaeological anthropological discussion, uh, that we can show that basically the whole linear model of, you know, linear progression through stages is not true. And it's like, well, but no one, I mean, I shouldn't say no one, right? Certain, I guess people are saying that, but 
but no one in the conversation who's genuinely engaging with these ideas in a deep way, in the way that I would think most of folks uh, in the community would suggest that more or less Wilbur, Gebser, you know, other thinkers are doing. Um, I, it's just sort of like, well, no one's saying that it's a clear this and that, and that we can account for all these different other ways of thinking about things, uh, still with the basic pattern framing of some kind of a developmental schema. Another thing I'll say is that he'll just, they'll leave out information, you know? So like this very important idea of seasonality, going back and forth, changing of hierarchies. Well, there's no mention of like the climate and how the climate sort of makes its demands that enforces certain kinds of, of seasonal shifts, right? And that once the introduction of the Holocene occurs and there's sort of a stable climatological epoch, then you see a certain kind of sustained uh, pattern that occurs in a certain way that couldn't have been possible in the kind of vast climatological fluctuations. So there's sort of a, um, there's an ig ignoring of other variables and factors that do that could do a great deal of explanatory power, but are not brought into the conversation. I suppose this technically wouldn't necessarily be classed as straw manning. It's more just sort of, um, well, but it is though. I mean, it, it also is. I think he also, they, 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 they straw man the idea of egalitarian societies, right? By ignoring information about immediate return hunter-gatherer forger societies and just basically ignore a whole swath of anthropological literature. So it's like, to tie this all back in, there's a there's a narrative that they're trying to present um, for various reasons, and they're leaving out a lot of contextualizing information that could actually further complexify their complexification, but they're sort of forcing their complexification into too simplistic uh, a schema. So um, those would be some examples, but again, I could I could present a whole list, and I did so in a couple instances with Pinker and Mertia Eliada and other thinkers. Um, but yeah, when you see that happening throughout so frequently, it, it, it leads to a sort of like, huh, okay, I've got to take everything here with a grain of salt. I've got to reduce, I've got to view this, you know, kind of peel off the layers of, of certain kinds of rhetorical flourishes that maybe don't land. I've got to do all this work just to kind of get to the kernels of the good stuff, which is in there in various parts of the book, but it's, that's, that's a, a problematic element about the book for me. I don't I don't disagree with any of that, but I um, there's some factors for me that mitigate my response to it is what I found. You know, like I was saying at the beginning, this is not the big integral historiography and, and we need one and it would have to be uh, more along the lines of the parameters you're suggesting. Uh, and this book is deliberately, I think, three different things and only one of those things is a history book. So there's always going to be some undermining of that aspect of it to do the political presentation and to do the philosophical conclusion drawing parts. So I, I give them some credit uh, or some leeway in that respect. Uh, I'm, I'm so used to reading Nietzsche that when someone refers to someone else negatively, I assume it might still be a positive. If Nietzsche says someone's ignorant and malicious, you'll find another book where he praises ignorance and maliciousness. So it's important not to assume we know what people mean by apparently dismissive statements especially in a culture where we're all kind of hardwired now to be really jumpy and critical of potential negative implications. I did, like I mentioned on uh, with Jeremy the other day, I listened to this as an audiobook rather than reading it. And I think that might cause some of those things that you're picking up on, Brendan, seem more like colloquial, just rhetorical flourishes to speech as if I was having a conversation with someone. Whereas if I was visually zeroing in on the text, I might go, yeah, that could be a flaw. 
Um, I do think that they, they have a kind of tendency to point to missing information that they want to fill in as being suspiciously missing, right? And you go, well, it's almost as if they're saying nothing was happening. Well, that's a good lead into starting to more richly explore the textures of what was happening that we don't normally take into account. But it's not necessarily the case that people were dismissing anything that was going on. It's like someone saying, because they don't see something in the media, why Why aren't they talking about this? Why are they holding it back from me? So I am a little bit wary of that kind of um, social and ecological suspiciousness imputed upon gaps of information. But generally, I'm pretty okay with the way they did it because of the way that I um, expect this book to be communicating, which is only one third of history text. Yeah, I would just throw in a few things there too. I think with those kind of rhetorical flourishes uh, about, okay, why isn't anybody talking about this or nothing happened for a hundred thousand years? Why do we believe that? I, I, as a general, as a book of public intellectual work, right? They're addressing the public and the kind of general myths that the public assumes or presumes that are in our media. I, uh, you know, just speaking, let's say, of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where literally there's the bone, you know, the, 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 the Australopithecus hitting the bone, and then it flies up, and then we skip all of that stuff and get to civilization and tool making. That's the interesting thing, when we started making tools. Oh, when we started building, you know, monumental centers, then things really picked up. I do think that as, as a general mythological tendency, that, you know, that, that is the kind of cultural attitude. So I kind of took those and those forms of statements generally with that kind of attitude in mind or who they were speaking to and who their, their readership and audience is. Um, I'll just bring up a few things too. I, I found it interesting because I've been following their, their, their essays and writing about this. Um, and the book doesn't bring in some of the nuances that their previous academic writing, when they were writing for an academic audience, does bring in, in terms of some of that nuance. So, so uh, Brendan was mentioning, um, you know, the the climatological uh, context of the last glacial maximum, right? Kind of helping that seasonal dualism really contrast the different forms of social organization. They bring that right up immediately, and they're drawing from the different anthropologists who talk about the climatological environmental factors that helped kind of produce that seasonal dualism or seasonal morphology. So they're aware of this, but it's, I find it interesting that they don't necessarily bring it into the, into the text as explicitly as they do in some of their earlier academic works when they're actually kind of building the arguments. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, things like, you know, James C. Scott's work on, on uh, uh, egalitarian cities during the three or 4,000 year, year period that we were only really beginning to learn about was also sort of predicated on Anthropocene changes, right? Climatological changes. Why did we shift into uh, centering on agriculture and cities? What kind of shifts in the, um, the Mediterranean uh, uh, climate were, were kind of promoting that or assisting that. And, and these as, you know, as a kind of open debate that anthropologists are always arguing about how much this factor in versus not. Um, and then there's that other interesting thing where uh, there's some evidence that, it, that the Holocene was already well, well and started when these egalitarian multi-subsistence uh, cities were already in effect for thousands of years. So, so there's contrary evidence back and forth, and there's nuance in there. I don't know if it's always explicitly stated in, in Dawn of Everything, which again, kind of, who is this book written for? It's a sort of a general public discussion book. 
Um, and and I, I, wit, I mean, my goal anyway is to kind of dig into the academic debates and try to draw from that uh, to add some of some of this nuance that we're talking about here and not end up strawmanning Rayburn Wengro, uh, but maybe they don't help them mm. help themselves by by not putting those arguments into this text. So I think it's a really important question to ask, who is this book for? Who's the who's the ideal audience for this book or the the presumed audience? And I think that that's a good point. It is popular history in some sense, not in a pejorative sense, but it is aimed at a mass audience, um, not a highly specialized sort of academic audience. I think there is also though a, there's a, there's a, I think the ideal audience has a, is an ideologically defined demographic as well. Um, I don't, I think that again, it'll be best used in an ecology of other analyses, but I think the one, there's a part of the, part of the reason why I feel uh, some anxiety about the reception of the work is because I feel precisely that it will be misunderstood for um, what's, uh, I'm trying to think of a good way of putting this. It's not too simplistic. I'm worried that people will think this book is something than what it is, is kind of my concern. I think Lehman is right. It's, it's, it's sort of three books doing three different things. And a big part of that is a sort of philosophical history. I think that some people will think it's just a history book and is and because it's a big one and it's got a lot of footnotes and because it's a, a lot of conversation about it there's a there's a concern that i have that it'll be just sort of an easy oh this is the new this is this is the history then you know and not be taken into a broader context of other ideas um so that there's a reason why it's sort of like because here's my point I, and to bring in this ideology issue it, my concern is not that the book is ideological. My concern is that the people will be inter, in, interacting with the ideology in a way that they sort of take up the purely factual line of argumentation uh, because of that, that it's sort of like, it appeals very much to what we believe or certain, you know, ways of looking at the world, it sort of conforms well to, let's say. And so then there's sort of, okay, well, everything that they're saying seems to be in line with how I would like things to be. So this, this must all be true. But I want to throw in that into this, that there are some great critiques of this book from the left. Um, there's a fantastic uh, YouTube channel called What is Politics, who there's a, the, the, the host is, is deeply versed in the anthropological literature. And just, they go after Wengrown and, and Graeber for basically ignoring huge swaths of the anthropological literature. And it's not coming out of an ideological disagreement that, oh, if people think this is true, then my leftist camp, you know, uh, ideas won't be taken up into society and implemented. It's precisely actually, it's like, oh, no, people are going to think because this is a leftist history, that these must be the facts. And First and foremost, I just feel that whatever nuancing and complexification and enriching of our narratives needs to occur, whatever, whatever, whatever that looks like, I think should be in dialogue with the, the best facts and the best uh, analyses and the, and the richest and most nuanced ideas. And I worry that because this skews in, in a certain way and is doing more things than just a history that people will misunderstand how, how this work fits into the broader literature on these topics. So there's this bunch of different ideas that just kind of came together there. And, but 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll just throw in. I, I did watch uh, uh, the the video blogger in question, and I had some problems with how they were framing. I think they were straw men and Graber and and Ringro quite a bit, unfortunately, um, because I've read all the text that they are reading and how they're interpreting. So I don't know. I I, um, I, I would question how much they're ignoring and then how much um, emphasizing, let's say, anarcho primitivist scientists, let's say in, in anthropology, et cetera, that field wasn't being ignored. It was just wasn't really their emphasis, right? Because they're looking more at, um, let's say, social ranking and inequality in the Paleolithic and what that had to say about how societies weren't necessarily one or the other. Um, I know Graeber has been critiqued for not taking the anarcho-primitivist or anarcho-communist uh, 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 field as as explicitly, you know, being a leftist, why isn't he doing that? Um, but there's nuance in there. So, I mean, this is the problem. We can take this all the way down and, and even in the intra-left debates and criticism. Um, I, I didn't find that a very convincing counter argument. Um, although, although, again, because of some of those issues of straw manning and et cetera, but not that that can't happen, you know, not that there can't be a good leftist critique of Graeber and Wengrow's book and where they're coming from. And I think there's some ultimate problems with, um, and the ecological side of things like, can, and this is something that, uh, that, uh, um, Matteo was, was bringing up in our, in our conversations as well, you know, ultimately, um, what are we going to do with cities and our cities ultimately going, going to drive a kind of coercive direction towards statehood, et cetera. So those are the kind of interesting things that I do think the author did bring up, uh, that the YouTuber did bring up. Yeah. Just before we lose this thread, cause I really think it's important. I, what I loved about that bloggers analysis was taking a materialist uh, you know, approach, which isn't to say a reductive, everything goes back to material, but that basically we cannot ignore material conditions if we want to achieve uh, political change in a way that is, you know, a, 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 an improvement on our current situation. So one of my fundamental critiques with this book is that they don't see it that way at all. And they reduce basically everything's volitional. It's like, why did all these different things happen? Well, people chose to do different things. And that fits in with their sort of ideological skew. But what I loved about that other analysis was like, well, wait a second, we need to deal with, you know, what are the, what's the material substrate? Because if we go to try to fix problems and we don't change the material conditions, we're just going to recreate them again, right? And so for me, it's so crucial that if we are interested in progressive change, uh, even radical progressive or leftist change, then we can't ignore, you know, the the environmental factors and the big forces of history. It, we ignore them to our peril. And I think that that's the main critique of, of the left that I've seen from this is that if we put everything about choice, we just ignore all these monumental influences that those are the things we kind of need to come to terms with. So, yeah, yeah there's... Um... There's two things that are really interesting to me about the way Brendan is coming at this, or and also the way Brendan's uh, uh, lensing the what is politics guy. Um, one is this question of what of something being ignored. Like this goes back to what I was saying, you know, about like what are they keeping from us, sort of thing. Is it being ignored, or does it just happen to not be in this particular text? Like what? Um, Obviously, everybody's doing a lot of things that aren't in every condition. And when we're trying to get an overall picture, we're often going to be kind of frustrated by the fact that they didn't bring in 
more material conditions? Or where's the analysis of communication technologies? Where's the analysis of energy production? Where's the ecological framing? And they might be in other places or they might not be in other places, but there's something peculiar, I think, about humanity today where we always sort of are concerned about what isn't in a particular example. And that gets me to uh, the worry Brendan was talking about, about this being the form of this content might be misleading to people. And I find that really interesting because it's an, it's something that we need to explore more deeply in the culture at the moment, which is there's a very strong sense that we have to be careful about the sources of information, about platforming them or making sure they're fact-checked or, you know, how do we make sure the output of information is important and held coherently and sensibly and isn't uh, problematic. Uh, and I appreciate those concerns, but temperamentally, I focus more on the other side, which is how do we make the receivers of information more responsible and less diluted? How do we make them better able to assimilate? How do we make them um, uh, assume in advance that all information will be misleading them and handle that to some degree? So I'm not as worried as Brennan is, but I appreciate that set of concerns. And I think those two have to be in dialogue with each other, which is what's our responsibility as recipients of the information and what are their responsibilities as outputters of a certain form of information. Uh, I, one thing just pops into my mind was a, a thing John Stewart did on The Daily Show years ago, talking about someone opens up Tale of Two Cities, they read it was the best of times, they put the book down, and they start denouncing Charles Dickens for ignoring all of these important, terrible conditions about the 19th century, right? So there's, there's a sense of how are we responding to the incompleteness of information in general. Um, maybe Jeremy has something to say, but I also wanted to check in with Ryan because uh, how are you doing on time, Ryan? Are we talking about what you want to talk about? Um, I would almost want to start diving into some of the more detailed things that are actually in the book, which is what I find fascinating is what are their actual observations and conclusions apart from our general sense of the framing and its effect on people, but maybe that's where you want to go or I just want to check in. Great. Um, I'm good to go for however long. I might need to take a bathroom break here or there, but uh, yeah, however long you guys can go for. But yeah, I, I agree, Layman, with that direction that you proposed. I think it'd be a good time to dive into some of the granularities and evidentiary claims presented in the book. But Jeremy, I think you had a response to Brendan about the, the um, YouTube video. Oh, just uh, generally speaking, I think, uh, that, and this is the issue, I think, with a, a, a book of, of, of popular readership, um, the the challenges I think are how much information do we bring up front? Because I do think they're very interested in, in the material dimensions of how we creatively shape and reshape ourselves. I think that's a big part of um, how they created the foundations of this text through their earlier essay writing that again was much more academic, but that's a very much just woven into the entire conversation in terms of climate, environment, resources, um, uh, and, and even in the even in the kind of framing of seasonal dualism, they're drawing from Olga Soffer's work, who I've just begun to dip into, but essentially looking at kind of aggregation and choke points of seasonal flora and fauna and fisheries, et cetera, and why people came together in such a large population, or what geographically um, these kinds of extended confederations of hunter-gatherer societies look like, and how that politics possible, and let's say the upper glacial maximum, they're drawing from all of those things to talk about seasonal dualism. 
Um, and even when they're bringing up ethnographic studies uh, that are more contemporary, that those are sort of factors that are drawn in. But to be, to be fair to what your point is, and I think it's a valid concern from the left is, uh, uh, how much are we going to overemphasize in a particular text volition and choice, right? Uh, and underemphasize the material conditions that are always a part of that. And I do think that maybe as it, again, as, as Lehman was saying, a philosophical or, or um, um, I don't know, stylistic or literary choice, they decide to emphasize decision, choice, creativity, the human capacity to make that. And, and I, I think in, a, in an effort to be non-reductive about that capacity, because they tend to, part of their critique in, in, um, in, in this text, but then also in the earlier work has been this sort of overemphasis on the material conditions as the driving force for human creativity. And they're kind of saying, well, no, we, we have creative responses to the material world, which they want, to, they want to emphasize. But perhaps I think that might obfuscate their actual grounding in, in very, very, being very aware of the material conditions of either the upper Paleolithic or um, hunter-gatherer society from 100 years ago, et cetera. Yeah, I want to add one thing about the volition. And obviously, if we were doing a, you know, a classical Barian take, we would want to balance that out with uh, sources of information and causes from all the quadrants. But uh, I think one of the things they're doing, and you're right, they emphasize volition quite a bit. Uh, I think they're leaning into the possibility, which they think is underserved in general history, that most of the functions that we associate with contemporary human beings have been present and active in human beings all along, right? So that it's not just that we've recently become volitional people who can wonder about how we should run society. They wanna say that we've probably drastically underestimated the degree to which that was present over the entire spectrum of sapient history. Yeah, well, and to that point, I think it's 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 a needed corrective, you know, it, it's just one that I feel like would be best presented in balance, right? In the same way that I'm a human being, and I have volition, I think, you know, determinists, I don't, you know, but uh, I, you know, I feel that way. But I also don't have total control over everything. You know, I am bounded by constraints of my environment. And I can hold those two things at the same time and appreciate that my volition plays out within a set of constraints. Um, I feel like this is where their ideology hurts their analysis most is that they don't take into account. I shouldn't say they don't take them into account. They explain them either away or they ignore them or what have you. There's a, a number of things that they do with the, with the kind of coercive set of constraints that humanity also deals with that they sort of uh, separate from their analysis in order to emphasize volition and for me, well, this is where the whole notion of developmental progression gets lost is because it's like they view it as a straitjacket, the notion that there could be any kind of, you know, higher order sorts of strange attractors that might be influencing certain things in a kind of law like quality um, that to them is like, no, if you're focusing on volition, we should, we should, and it's a, it's a wonderful thought experiment, you know, and, and this is sort of a thing too, like if this book were called a thought experiment of the possibilities of human volition in ancient prehistory, you know, like perfect, but it's not quite presented that way. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, they also do consider a lot of the material factors. I just feel that there's, there's a way of properly balancing those two 
because uh, I also hate reductionist history and materially material reductionist history. Like, oh, well, why did the Renaissance happen? Well, because, you know, the Medici's had a lot of money or something. Or, you know, you get these sort of like uh, kind of what that Marxist, Marxian, you know, uh, in the final analysis, sort of everything comes down to money and exchange of, you know, those sorts of things. And I think that there's a there's a healthy, a healthy medium to be found there. I don't think this book does it. But again, in the broader ecology of analyses, it, it provides something that 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 skews towards volition and that's a, a crucial thing to be considering when, when we're doing these reconstructions too. I would also just want to say this as well I think it's really important. I think that one of the biggest concerns and a crucial and important one is that developmental narratives and stage theories uh, are sort of uh, they certainly have the propensity to infantilize indigenous communities and indigenous societies. Like, oh, they were at the dawn of humanity. And so they were more like children or something. And they didn't have all of the cognitive capacities that, you know, us modern Westerners do or something. Right. And I think that that needs to be completely blown out of the water. And this, this book does do a good job of showing that that's the, that, that you can't, that's ridiculous. Right. So being able to appreciate that a hundred thousand years ago, the full scale of you know hierarchical complexity was available to any given person in a given community is crucial, I think, and it's also just borne out by the evidence and our biological you know it's all there, right? So that needs to be a big part in how we refine developmental uh, stage theory models about human history. I do think that then that a really important thing comes into the mix here, which needs to be nuanced and and it's been occupying a lot of my thought is sort of well, how do certain contextual societal organizations influence what winds up being maybe the aggregate level of hierarchical complexity in the society and how does that play out in relation to its particular technologies and then this is where that technological and capacity and skill issue comes back in which becomes very fraught and I think that within that stew is where you could start to see the components of a real genuine uh you know sort of developmental model that is taking into account a lot of these a lot more of these nuances than just oh you know archaic societies were you know primary thinkers or something you know like too simplistic so yeah sure yeah I, I think um those are good framings essentially the what it comes down to for me here and thinking about the big picture and, and and what this means for developmental maps I don't think it necessarily throws things out but what it does do um, and what this new paradigm, I mean, it's not just them and they're part of this new, um, maybe they're the first to try to, one of the first to try to popularize the new history as, as we understand it. James C. Scott is another one who's written about this um, and I'm sure there's gonna be more texts in, in the near future. Uh, but what I think it does do, it, it relativizes the development of civilizations, right? Of, of states of uh, agrarian societies as maybe one unfolding directionality of complexity, but not one that is totalizing or universal. Um, and then it pluralizes in, in, in terms of saying, well, okay, indigenous societies or hunter forager societies or ones that were both had their own forms of complexity that probably had their own um, uh, developmental trajectories in terms of you know, their own directionalities. So it really just decenters the whole the whole image or patterning that we have, and it kind of pluralizes it across very different forms and variations. And it doesn't centralize civilization. But here's the interesting thing: like this is the argument: does it should it centralize civilization? Is civilization genuinely some kind of genuine meta next step 
that people are doing? Um, and if it is, in what way? And I think for me anyway, in terms of my own um, theoretical framing of this, it differentiates the whole trajectory of civilization as one form of complexification and shows that there are others and really a kind of integration or uh, uh, a coherence across these different forms of social complexity and evolution is one that kind of holds them all together, uh, but it doesn't need to do so in terms of seeing civilization or the emergence of civilization as a sort of a necessary universal next stage for humanity. And I do think it comes down to that sort of question and debate is, is this a genuine next phase for all of us, or is it one direction that, um, again, environmental, social, cultural consciousness factors decided to go down um, and it complexified and it became runaway, right? But that there's other complementary forms of complexification that also exist. And if those two also exist, then where, where does it put us now in this planetary context where there is a lot of emphasis, uh, particularly in the contemporary scholarship, Tyson Young Caporta, Robin Wall Kimmerer in, in more popular terms, of saying, well, hey, you know, um, maybe the domesticate, domestication of agriculture is one form of working with the environment, but uh, controlled fires, right, that, that indigenous and nomadic cultures have used for um, since the Paleolithic, at the very least, probably earlier, if we're going to go back into, into hominids, um, had some form of way of, of shaping our environments and our bioregions, right? So that, that kind of takes or, or complexifies or decenters the, again, the technological um, narrative that only here do we get that form of complexity. So what does civilization afford, right? What differentiation does it afford? And is it necessarily a next step? Or is it um, just one form of variation and differentiation in a larger array of different complexities that might converge in a kind of planetary or integral or meta-modern, right? What happens when we bring them all together? Then I think we get some interesting questions about development, integration, and we get different analogs from nature, like um, symbiogenesis with like Lynn Margulis and, and that kind of metaphor, right? We have kind of differentiation of different organelles that sort of come together and create something, but not necessarily um, any kind of clear sense of we might even not we might not even call it development until everything kind of coheres into a working organism. So um, I guess to, to wrap up, I guess my question would be: Can we call it development until we do that? You know, you know that famous Gandhi phrase that's Western civilization. Um, they asked what he thought about it. And he said, oh, I think that'd be a good idea. Like, well, maybe development would be a good idea if this can all somehow cohere. If these different forms of differentiation and complexification actually cohere. Um, so yeah, I think it relativizes and decenters that. And then we have that question of, well, can development emerge here? Um, and that's sort of how I've been playing with some of these ideas in my own work. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's great. And it, it, I feel like in some ways it's been helpful to sort of help situate where, where the conversation could go. I don't mean this conversation, but this broader conversation. Um, I think of, of exploring these different avenues for trying to integrate this information and integrate the the, com the complexification of these models. And I think that when you're working at that, um, how do I put this? Uh, well, yeah, just that I feel like some some very rich avenues for consideration might play out in different ways of different uh, uh, different explanatory ways of, of sort of modeling 
um, effectively that's still broadly developmental, even as it's a lot more nuanced by the you know ideas. So it would be an interesting thing to kind of maybe try to um, hone those a bit. Try to, I mean, I know I'm going to be doing that over the next however long, and and then maybe bring that back into some conversation to see what 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 benefits or or what merits or demerits either sort of approach has to trying to best integrate these sorts of ideas. Um, but I'm also I'm keen to dig into some of the granular uh, evidence, uh, you know, and and uh, general ideas here in the in the book if we wanted to to turn to go to the text, uh, as they say, um, if anyone wanted to do that. Yeah, well, I'll just uh, um, make a couple of comments and then maybe talk about the things in this book that I enjoyed the most. Um, first is I, I really like the way Jeremy is talking about these pluralistic cohering that would give us the basis for a new way of thinking about or even a first real way of thinking about actual development. Because I a lot of a lot of the time I have this idea in my mind that we still basically imagine the world as kind of a flat plane and there's a, ver a single vertical axis that goes up. Uh, but really we're dealing with some kind of planetary sphere where up can be all these different directions simultaneously, right? You could have an equally high altitude in what appears to be exactly the opposite direction of someone else's progress. And it's really important for us to keep that omnidirectionality in mind when we're thinking about what these things are, because they're much more like organic layers, right? They're um, uh, altitudes of cycles and variations that are ebbing and flowing and fissuring and converging and cross-pollinating, and that's all what has to cohere. And it's really important to make sure on our attempt, our journey to try to find what those are, that we don't consciously or unconsciously compressed down to this notion of a single vertical axis. Um, so that's one of the dangers, but what did I love in the book? Um, I love the concept of schismogenesis. That really is straight at state in my mind. I love like Jeremy was talking about the seasonal modes and the sense that you're um, no one and no civilization is ever in a particular mode, but there are circumstantial oscillations that they go through. And that because of these, a lot of our ancestors may have had a more um, sincerely ironic or serious playful relationship to civilization than we do because they passed in and out of it. It wasn't as binding because they had that freedom to move. They also had the freedom to decide whether they wanted to obey the structures in that system. And they had some conceptual space if they wanted to rethink that system. I think philosophically, this breakdown of three basic kinds of freedom and three basic kinds of oppression is a really interesting contribution of this book. Um, their analysis of a statehood arising in the exapted domestic role of the metatribal patriarch who combines care with violence. That's a very interesting reading. Uh, a lot of the time in this book, they come back to the fact that inequalities in wealth and resources don't necessarily have to become uh, fixed uh, hierarchical inequalities in how society gets patterned. That requires an extra step. So that when we're looking at inequality, we haven't laid our hands on the problem. It requires inequality to be translated into some kind of fixed power over what the social patterns are. And that wasn't always the case. And there might then be ways for us to undo that in our current system. And just what I mentioned earlier, just the cross-pollinization of cultures, 
the way that, you know, even if we don't say we sourced the European Enlightenment entirely in the positions of North American indigenous nations, we have to be thinking of ways that we no, no, don't normally consider, which are cultures created each other in various ways. And they ran into things they could recognize in each other and uptook things from each other insofar as they could recognize that. And nobody's got a single cultural trajectory. That even if you were, even if you buy the European story, they didn't do it on their own. They're a part of a community that was co-doing it from all kinds of different directions. And I think that's a really important piece of the story. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just throw it. Throw, uh, Ryan, did you want to jump in actually? Then I'll, okay. Yeah, I, I love the, uh, the emphasis on the, the schismogenesis, particularly the chapter on, on uh, the different Canadian and Californian communities that in, you know, seeing their uh, Canadian neighbors with a kind of very hierarchical structure of society decided very much to kind of do the opposite. We might even imagine, I don't know if, if this is particularly the case, but the Plush Collins as another example, really having this sort of democratic uh, re relationship with authority and then kind of in some ways publicly flogging their their leaders to make sure that they were kind of in step with, you know, actually being democratic and punishing them if they didn't. Um, with their big neighbors, the big bullies of you know the Aztecs being right next to them. So, so there is a really interesting way in which relationality kind of um, shows up again and again throughout all these different examples they bring up. Um, the, the the careful uh, attention of, of, of Neolithic uh, communities, various examples of sort of avoiding agriculture or moving away from it, actually trying it for a bit and kind of get, pushing back off of it. Uh, the Cahokian. Uh, uh, chapter is quite an interesting one too in terms of um, uh, how it was kind of avoided after after that point after the Cahokian civilization so again yeah the relationality really came forward for me and those are some of my favorite parts of the of the text as well um, I already mentioned the seasonal dualism thing um, it, they bring this up more in some of their earlier work but um, they talk about the the possible role, and, and Layman, you and I talked about this, the possible role that um, seasonal dualism uh, assisted in kind of this dispersal and aggregation contrast, right? It's a very kind of meta, as you're saying, there's almost a meta-modern oscillation in that seasonal dualism, which I found so interesting. And it made me kind of quip with a note saying, well, hey, maybe they were the original meta-modernists because they got that kind of oscillation. Um, but but my point is, they bring up an interesting hypothesis, and I, I don't think they develop it too much in this text, uh, about how cultural efflorescence or behavioral modernity may have, um, the conditions for that emergence may have been with this highly contrasted seasonal dualism of kind of moving back and forth between very different forms of social organization and having a very, con and therefore of having a very conscious um, uh, awareness of how identity, power, authority, um, and then, of course, time in terms of that rhythmicity uh, are all kind of playing out and created these sort of very fecund conditions for the emergence of behavioral modernity and symbolic thinking, et cetera. It's just their hypothesis they throw out. But I, I kind of intuitively found that to be very interesting because it sort of points to oscillation as this really important precondition for the emergence of culture. Um, that relationality, whether you're talking about schismogenesis or you're talking about seasonal dualism and the contrast of social organization. That relationality between, that contrast between kind of creates this very interesting creative and dynamic culture, right? That's very individuated in some sense or another. 
Um, so that was really interesting for me. And it got me really thinking about how that might apply for us today as we're talking about oscillation in, in the modern postmodern context. And then um, something I'm writing about in my book is sort of seeing perhaps this larger arc of oscillation between civilization um, and its complexity and generally what we're talking about with sort of indigenous complexity and what happens in, in this process of becoming planetary as we're really beginning to um, look or imagine the future in a much more bioregional and indigenous oriented um, way, or at least learning from it. Like what happens in an oscillation back to reintegrating those perspectives? Um, I, I think there's this, um, if the hypothesis is correct, there's a very fascinating possibility of a kind of planetary trans-individuation, which may be occurring for us at the moment in sort of the wider arc of, uh, of this historical process. So, uh, yeah. Um, gosh, so yeah, I guess if we're thinking about things that we liked a lot from the book and, and things that we learned of, uh, that we valued, um, I've already spoken about the, the decoupling of modes of production from, um, from sort of being a defining characteristic of what we might think of as some kind of stage of complexity. I think that that's one of the key takeaways for me and an important one, and it sort of invites new ways of thinking about, uh, the whole thing, um, which is exciting. Um, I think, yeah, there, there's, there's a strong thrust of the book that is sort of deconstructive. It's trying to, to sort of rattle and shake up what you thought you knew. And there's also um, parts that are reconstructive or at least um, pr you know, productive. They're, they're, they're offering something. And I, I particularly enjoyed what they were offering. Um, I tend to do that, you know, I, I don't know. There's something about like, we can, we can take things apart all day, but you know, I get most excited when, the, when people try to start putting things back together and sort of offering, um, offering something. And their notion of um, the kind of triad of, of well, when, when they sort of deconstruct the state and what that really means, and then they propose an, an alternative model based around knowledge, force, and something like charisma, and that these two or these three things can kind of be coupled in, in, in certain ways or found all together or, you know, and, and to be able to look at the lens of societies through those particular categories and see what permutations are sort of possible um, was, I think, also like a fruitful avenue for kind of further consideration. Um, in fact, actually, even, even viewing um, certain kinds of stage theory models through that lens can be really interesting too. I mean, when they were talking about these heroic societies um, that sort of formed on the marginal peripheries of, of, of urban centers and sort of uh, were a hierarchical and you know all about you know glory and you know there are ways of viewing that very much in the sort of imperial epic kind of you know red this and that and I don't know there's an open there's an avenue to explore potential ways that oh maybe maybe either we can um, see that what the stage theories we're getting at can be better explained by the the Graeber uh, Wengrow model or vice versa, you know, maybe, oh, maybe what they're saying can be better explained by, anyway, so that was an uh, interesting element. Generally speaking, though, I think the main thrust of the book, so long as it isn't, you know, if you can peel away the overstatements, I think it's really important, which is that there's a great deal of complexity and that the the notion that different things are happening in different ways um, in the in the record that you find you know forger monumentality is a fascinating idea that you don't need you know a fixed agricultural base to be doing all sorts of monumental public works and great levels of complexity um, you know all those all those contributions really help nuance uh, any you know 
potentially simplistic sense that things just sort of grew, you know, and then, you know, of course you got the, the agriculture. It's interesting too, I think as, as I, this stuff is brought up a lot for me. I, I love to garden. I think of sort of my vision of, uh, you know, the Shire really is sort of my, my paradisal framing of things, but it's a very agricultural kind of uh, ideal, right? And it's interesting to think about other sort of ideals, um, particularly when you're talking about uh, immediate return, egalitarian uh, hunter-gatherer societies where you really are able to have equality, uh, essentially. Now, this isn't their point. This is more the point that's coming from the critique uh, that I've been kind of going down that rabbit hole of. And But to think about that as it's uh, as an ideal form, where actually agriculture is this imposition, it's this drudgery, it's this, you know, it's a, a different lens that I don't tend to think about, um, you know. Um, yeah, so I'll just say that. Um, so those are a few things. Uh, there were some nuances that they added to sort of the Mesopotamian civilizational expansion, which I thought were, were interesting. Um, and, but, and then as far as the schismogenesis thing, I think that's also very important. I guess that goes back to Gregory Bateson originally, I think in terms of he coined the phrase, but that's certainly an anthropological thing that you see all the time. And it's very interesting. And it's a good word to, to have because it, it kind of, it helps solidify a concept that, that, I, that you see a lot happening, at least I do, you know, that it's often those groups that we are closest to, whether, you know, uh, geographically, temporally, ideologically, what have you, that provide the, the most intense sort of friction and, and forcing of sort of going uh, two different ways. You see that, you know, a classic example is sort of the emergence of Christianity out of Judaism and sort of the anti-Semitism that results as trying to emphasize, oh no, we're different. And so then that can take, be taken to sort of pathological extremes. Um, so it's, it's also a good word to have in terms of thinking about warnings and things to keep on your radar for how we define ourselves. It's also playing out arguably all over America right now. Oh, I'm not a Democrat or I'm not a Republican or what have you. So uh, identity construction through negation or through uh, through an othering um, and all that. But again, that's not so much um, original to their work, though they do make good use of those ideas. So anyway, those are some of the things that really kind of resonated with me. Schismogenesis intrigues me both philosophically because I'm uh, non-dualistically obsessed with same differences <laughs> and the idea that something has to be the same and has to be different or the different enough to be same uh is fascinating but there's there's an interesting element there which goes to the critique some people might offer we mentioned it earlier that this book doesn't lean heavily enough into the materialist uh basis of history because schismogenesis supports this notion that we're a lot more um you know, playful and cultural than might otherwise be assumed, because in schismogenesis, you might reject something that's pragmatic merely to have a different identity than someone who's too similar to you, right? And so that means that there's a whole drift of human history that is not driven by survival, materialism, pragmatics, right? And we understand that by just dealing with human beings in our own lives, they don't always do things that make sense. They don't, they're not always driven by practical forces of historical and material necessity. They try weird things out. They do things that seem to have no good reason. And I love that that 
um, quirkiness and richness of the human character is brought into this because if you don't really appreciate what human beings are like, you'll tell yourself a really truncated version of what history is, right? If you don't, uh, if you don't remember like they do through the illustration of the Iroquois that some people might choose to live their life on the basis of fulfilling dreams they had, right? If you, if you don't at least have that in mind, which is backed up by all the kinds of weird people we know in our lives, then you're going to get a very weird, flattened reading of history. And that reading will contribute to a flattened, peculiar notion of what stages are based on the insufficiency of your appreciation of what human nature is. So I really like that they're kind of forcing back into the conversation the full idiosyncrasy of what it is to be a human being. Uh, and one other thing I just, before you get to that, Graham, I wanted to mention the decoupling of stages of development and technology, which is really important. And it would be interesting as a project to see whether that works with Wilbur's notion, because Wilbur's notion is that technology is coupled to the stage that creates it only at the moment of creation. And after that, tools, concept, words are all available for anyone to use. They become immediately decoupled. So I want to bring that up too. That's an interesting point. I just wanted to throw out the question for both of you, what you make of the kind of double-edged sword of the sort of uh, corrective that retroactively sees the kind of full sweep of the potentials of a modern human in our you know, ancient ancestors. Um, on first, you know, gloss, it sort of immediately seems like, well, yes, of course, that's a very good thing. We otherwise were dehumanizing or infantilizing, et cetera. So I definitely understand the, the reasons to do it. But I feel like there's another element that, that's also kind of dangerous, I think, potentially, because one of the great sort of postmodern insights was that people see the world differently right? You know, depending on where you come from and what group you're a part of and all sorts of factors, like the notion of the kind of modern, uh, you know, individual rational agent or something that from modernity is just like, well, no, people can see the world radically different based on the peculiarities of their context and where they're coming from. And so I see a potential danger in, in this sort of retroactive saying, oh, well, you know, people back then were every bit, at one point they say every bit as skeptical and, and critical thinkers as people today are. And that really st stuck out to me. I'm like, I don't, I don't know, because in, in sort of retroactively uh, seeing those characteristics of sort of postmodern or hypermodern society in these other societies, I feel like we're also kind of painting them with our own vices almost, we're, we're, or at the very least, we're just doing a disservice to the idea that if we really want to appreciate difference fully based on context, then we, we kind of can't fully get away with just seeing our ancient ancestors as other versions of ourselves. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that, uh, that quandary. Yeah, I think um, uh, having a good balance between the two, I think, is important because I, I realize what they're doing there by saying they're just like us, right? Um, Graber, in many of his works, brings up this theme of knocking down the walls uh, between the past and the present, um, walls that were intended to keep the past at like an inferior stage or, or a childlike um infantilized stage, right? I mean, we don't want to do that. So, so there is certainly important work, as you're saying, in kind of seeing the complexity of, of our ancestors or alternative modes of living, indigeneity, et cetera. Um, 
but yeah, I think you're right in that the, the double side of that is how far are we going to modernize them, right? Because the, the conversation then ends up going both ways, as you're saying, that we might project a little bit too much about, you know, how we are today versus our ancestors. And I think this is probably what the, um, you know, I've seen this elsewhere, but but the, the leftist critique of that is is really kind of advocating for um, specifically specifically egalitarian oriented societies and the importance of egalitarianism and human evolution. And, and so I think that they're advocating for there are other ways of living that are very radically different that that we don't quite get right um, or, or are very estranged from us. And I think that's generally the indigenous critique too, right? Like that we get from indigenous scholars that hey, you know what, being kind of animistic and, and having a sort of cognition with place-based thinking and, and relationality and these different social um, arrangements is really good. And, and you, you guys aren't really familiar with that being, you know, in an organized state, et cetera. Um, and I think those differences and contrasts are, are very important. Um, I, I guess for me, uh, it's, it's kind of, the, da the danger is necessary to, to start teasing that out, right? Like when we take those walls down, those, those walls have to go down. And this is a new responsibility that I think we have to learn to individuate about in terms of, well, how are we different? And how are we the same? And what does that look like? Um, certainly the danger is there, but I think the work is also there. Uh, so. Yeah, that's a great question, Brendan. And, you know, for me, uh, the, I think the reason we need to balance is we just don't know, right? We have to keep the possibilities in mind from both directions. I mentioned this when I was talking with Jeremy the other day on Clubhouse, which was we can tell ourselves a story as they sort of do in this book, which is that since human beings came online, we basically had all the fundamental human functions right away. That's what comes with this operating system. And because we haven't uh, structurally changed very much, we can assume that people with brains like these can do all those things. That's a really important possibility. We need to take that very seriously. But we don't know for sure that they were the same as us, right? You get into the Julian James argument that the corpus callosum was different, or like I mentioned um, the other day, right? A 2% difference in the amount of the DMT in your brain would give you a radically different worldview. And that would not show up when we look at the skulls of the ancient dead. So we have no way of knowing if they were radically different or radically the same as us or somewhere in between. And so we have to hold all those spaces open because we simply don't know. But what we don't want to do is, is assume that we do and foreclose on the possibility that a huge amount of variation was present and maybe more variation than we have at the moment, because there might be an argument saying, healthy circumstances are ones in which people are more able to access to sample a broader pattern space. And those might be situations where our living style is more suited to our human physiology, or where we're less concerned about the artificial pressures of socialization, or where we're eating more different kinds of foods and have more bacteria in our body and are generally consuming more psychedelics or any number of things that would say these people are seeing more of what we can be than most people today are so it's not even the case that maybe they're as good as us there may be have been and not all of them right there may have been unique healthy situations even very early on in human history where they understood the range much better than we understand it today and doesn't that kind of bring us back to these big metamodern integral generalist approach questions, which is, 
we're very comfortable asking those kinds of things. Why did we get stuck? Or if there was more plasticity in the past of social experimentation, what does this narrowing down afford us? And where is this going, right? Like, is this, is this universally good? Do we want more of this? Or do, is there a return? What does the return look like in terms of integrating any of the gains of this particular narrowing down or specialization have afforded us, right? We might say our particular modernities with technology or landing rockets on the moon or having a kind of um, uh, disconnection from land environment, bi the biome in our gut, like what has that afforded us um, as something that's processual and in relationship to that history and past. So I think, yeah, that's where the interesting questions really pop up. Yeah, I think it's interesting and a little unnerving to see those questions, how much they're popping up in our in the culture wars, really. I mean, you know, it's it's really interesting to think about if there's sort of a shared basis in the recognition that what we're doing right now is really unsustainable and probably, you know, destined to imminent and terrible collapse of some kind. There's then that question of what we do about that. And a very common response is, as you say, that, you know, do we return and what does that look like? What to return to what or what, or, you know, how do we integrate these sorts of things? But that returning narrative is a very potent one. Um, and it's one that you can see playing out. Um, I would argue, and I'd throw this out there for, you know, what your, your thoughts would be. But I mean, there's an uncomfortable way that I don't think <laughs> when I throw this out, anyone will want to acknowledge that, but there's an uncomfortable way in which there is similarities, structural similarities to the answers being provided by both, um, you know, sort of uh, indigenous complexity, we need to return to the land and in a deep nature, you know, uh, connection with that and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, more nationalist articulations of return of blood and soil and things like that. And of course, these things then interweave in really uh, kind of terrifying ways, actually, when you get into these new age, facet, new age fascist, you know, entities. Um, but the, my point in saying this is that we're clearly recognizing that what's happening is broken. And there seems to be a universal response of we need to go back. So what do we go back to? And it seems like the nationalists, the white nationalists and, the, and those folks, so they want to kind of go back to a certain time when that was, you know, oh, well, that works. And I felt my connection with my group and my, 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 my kin. And, you know, there's a sort of ideal there, but there's a going back and that's going back to, well, maybe what we should have is hunter gatherer societies and forager societies. I mean, look, they were egalitarian. Well, they disagree, but, you know, if you believe that they were egalitarian, then like that would seem to be a huge benefit and they were sustainable. So I think there's a huge question here. I think, it, again, it can be uncomfortable because um, sort of, you know, it, politically, these are situated as sort of right and left. But my point would be that structurally, they're actually somewhat similar. I mean, Wilbur would call the re retro romantic argument of that whole Rousseauian move and everything as part of this. Um, but my concern about the going back thing is really is really urgent. Um, and it's because, well, one, I've, I've had a taste with, you know, reactionaryism and I've seen what that looks like. We've all seen it collectively, you know, where this is playing out. And one of the promises of metamodernism to me is that it's not wanting to go back. It's wanting to go forward, but to do so in an integrative way that's bringing the best of these different backs into the future. Um, and I, I get uncomfortable when, you know, a work like this or others is sort of, uh, 
used to argue that, you know, we need to go back to something. Um, again, whether that's a fair use or not of the work and all that and the application issues that Layman and, you know, we were discussing are all there. Um, but I wonder what you would make of this notion of, of the narrative of going back and what are we going back to versus the whole promise of developmental theory, which is that we don't have to go back. We can go forward with what was good about the past. Um, yeah. Yeah, these are great questions and probably would open up a whole other follow-up conversation, but but I'll just I'll just be short and, and mention two things. Um, one is I, I don't think reversal is necessarily anti-development or anti-emergence. I think that again, that oscillation might be really important. Um, but two, there is a very interesting overlap between the languaging and framing of reactionaries that want to retreat into an ethnographic past um, or imagine that that will be the future that everybody kind of goes back to their sort of ethnic origin point and we retreat from globalization in some way. Um, and more bioregional conversations about localization or Murray Bookchin's municipalism or um, discussions around peer-to-peer -peer economies and and uh, cosmolocalism. I, I think my, my, my languaging for this, the distinction I often use is, there's a difference between globalization and this process of de economic development and modernity as we've been doing it with our with economic capital and what might be called planetization, which is there might be another way to go global without globalization. And I think we're trying to figure out what that is. And it might look like a cul-de-sac. It might look like a first attempt that dissolves and then folds back into a more complex emergence that looks like planetization. And I do think it uh, Latour talks about this as a kind of orthogonal move, right? That the back and forth, forward towards more development and globalization, backward towards a retreat from that is, is a kind of false dichotomy or, 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 or a, it's disconnected from the actual world and the planetary situation that we're in with the meta crisis. The orthogonal move is the move towards the terrestrial, um, which seeks for this new common ground while also kind of bringing back that localization. So for me, that the orthogonal move is not, isn't necessarily backwards or forwards, but a kind of move from, from the side real realm that integrates. And I think that languaging or forms of, of language that are similar to that might be helpful to distinguish what we're talking about here, because certainly integrating uh, bioregionalism, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, indigenous thinking, indigenous complexity is probably gonna be important for our survival, um, but we can't go back in the sense of the population being what it is. The only way to go back would be for everything to really collapse down to such a degree of loss of human life and other life, right? That that wouldn't look great. So aside from entertaining ecocide and, and human near human extinction, what are our options? It has to be some kind of tertiary move, right? So that's sort of where I go with that question. Yeah, there's a deep, uh, I think, very straightforward ambiguity about going back in human affairs, you know, not even very philosophically, but like everybody knows if you get lost on a trail, you can go back to the crossroads and that's a very smart thing to do. On the other hand, if you broke your leg skiing in the mountain, you're not going to try to fix your leg by climbing back to the top of the mountain where the incident occurred. So there's, there's this um, very human ambiguity about whether going back is a useful or not useful thing. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, I think we should 
be constantly aware that people who speak of reactionaries in particular, but anybody who speaks of a return is as much inventing something new as they are thinking about return. It's just a way of extrapolating a new kind of future. I take very seriously the possibility of pathologies as regressions, but we have to be careful not to think that what we're regressing to is somehow the same as ancient or indigenous living styles from the past. Those are almost two different axes. Uh, but we should be we should be cautious, definitely, about the danger of societies rolling back to more simplistic attractor states. That seems to get us into horrendous genocidal trouble. Uh, and I'm tempted to go into a much more cosmological domain because I'm like I I would probably say that in the metaphysics of adjacency, time by its very nature slips past itself, and so you've always just missed it, and therefore retroactively approaching time is the normal human relation in all phases, and therefore we naturally overlay that on all histories, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we don't have to go down that road, but I think it is normal for all of us to think of time as a looping back structure, because we always, even the present moment is something we just passed by. Uh, and uh, one more thing, which is to Jeremy's point a little bit about the, the, the additional move, the orthogonal move, the tertiary move, I think that's true. And I think that some of that move is, is negotiating the sweet spot, right? Because it's not about going forward or going back. If some people say we're going back, if, you, if they're not insane, they're usually saying we want to pull back a little right now in these circumstances. So there is this important adjacency issue of getting to the right threshold. And sometimes that means a little back and sometimes that means a little forward. I just wanna say two things real quick. One is, yeah, I think it all depends on what the axis is that we are moving along, right? If we're conflating development with technological development, which I again wanted to argue, and I think this book argues are not this, well, I mean, this isn't the exact argument it's making, but it's the implications of it, that the modes of production and technology are a different thing entirely than what we would think of as say complexity, right? But um, so if we are able to decouple those things, what if we can keep moving forward in some sense, but then maybe alter our, our sort of technological or relationship to technology and modes of production in a way that might temporarily seem like we're going back to a time when things were very different in that domain, but that's not a regression. That's actually a anyway, progression, but I want to throw that out. And then I also wanted, speaking of time, just say that I, uh, I should probably uh, depart soon and wanted to throw that out there if uh, we wanted to do any quick summaries or any digestion. Great, great. Yeah, we've gone for over two hours. And when Layman was going cosmic on the metaphysics of adjacency and the nature of time, I thought that'd be a good place to start wrapping it up. But to end, I kind of wanted to end on a bizarre note. And I think in a lot of these conversations, we focus a lot about, we focus a lot on the subject at hand, obviously, but as a kind of recurring motif or theme that's cropped up throughout this discussion, especially something you kept alluding to, Brendan, right, is what are all of the things that are not included in the book, right? What are all of the other contextual factors or variables or data points or perspectives that were not present that sh we should take into consideration to properly contextualize our reading and interpretation and conclusions that we're drawing from this book, right? So I have a, a thought experiment I want to frame like this. Are you guys familiar with uh, M. Night Shyamalan's um, The Village, the movie? Okay, so let's let's say this is a thought experiment. So let's say that I grew up in a cult of the, the uh, Graber Wangrel cult. And this book is the only book I've ever read in my entire life, right? I'm 29 years old. This is the only perspective on history I, I know. So if I was coming to you three 
and I and you knew that I was, you know, I, I had such a, a, a particular angle on history through this book. And you wanted me to expand my lens and frame a little bit, right? And, and so I can better contextualize and digest all of these insights presented in the book, right? So it's, I, I think of it not as a both and, but as a both and, 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 and. And so the question is, what are the other ends? So Brennan, let me start with you. What are some other authors, books, sources, podcasts, materials, et cetera, that I should be looking into as this person who only grew up knowing this book that would help me to better round out my picture of how I should be digesting, assimilating this information? Uh, that's an awesome question. I love it. Uh, it's a very helpful way of framing that, actually. Um, so I would say this book is a critique of a, of a standard narrative, and they say that explicitly, and they're saying this is we're offering a different story. I would say familiarize yourself with that other story and then get a better sense of what all the evidence is for that other story. Now, specifically, I mean, yes, the resources are plenty for that because it is up till recently or up and I would argue it's still the consensus. I mean, this is, you know, they're bringing in new information, but I would say that by far, if you were to talk to most anthropologists or historians and say, is it, would you say it's more or less true or false that generally civilization proceeds from blah, 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 and goes to blah, blah, blah. They'd say, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, so yeah, I, you're on, you're, I'm sort of on the spot to think up specific books that might do a good job of articulating that. I mean, they, they mentioned Vandermeer, I think I'm saying his name incorrectly, but he was an ancient Near Eastern historian. Um, I have his textbook and was consulting that a little bit through this and kind of comparing notes and stuff. And it's an introductory book, but so anyway, there's that. But I would say, um, yeah, just familiarize yourself with that other narrative. Get get some other textbooks um, uh, that go over this period. Maybe use a couple instances like you know, maybe focus on the Fertile Crescent and then maybe some instance in Mesoamerica somewhere and try to familiarize yourself with sort of this, the, that, that narrative, then read the footnotes and see what they're referencing and on particular points where you might find, oh, they're making this argument here in this book about this happened after this, but maybe that's not true. You can go and consult their argument or their, their article that they reference. I mean, this is sort of just standard kind of scholarship, but it's part of the potential problem of a mass popular philosophical history book, right? Um, is that uh, it's the kind of missing all that stuff. So if, if you give me a little time, I can, I'd be very happy to actually maybe try to draw up a sort of bibliography of, or something. Um, but I would say that that would be sort of the tack to take. Um, and I guess just to throw into that mix though, all of, the, all of that would include this would be elements of um, uh, evolutionary history in terms of the biogenetic you know, substratum that out of which that occurs, the complexity theory, strange attractors, um, uh, you know, I mean, even down to the laws of physics, climatological progressions, the, uh, the timeline of geo, um, the, the point being that there are so many constraints imposed by our material conditions that it really helps to balance a narrative of volition and choice with, well, what might be some of those environmental constraints? And if I have a better sense of that, I think that would round out this book really well. How about you, Jeremy? And Jeremy, you had mentioned earlier that they actually didn't include some information and research that they, they included in other articles that they didn't include in this book. So what are some other things people should familiarize themselves with to better grok some of these core insights? 
I mean, I would throw in, again, Olga Soffer's work. I don't know how accessible it is for non-academics, but um, it's, it's very interesting and engaging work for me. But, um, and that's looking more at the, like specifically Paleolithic seasonal dualism and, and the environmental conditions. But it, it kind of is to Brendan's point as well, that it's really looking at those material conditions and climatological conditions that enables seasonal dualism to flourish during that time. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I thought of two, two authors. One would be William Irwin Thompson. Um, uh, he has a short little book called Transforming History, and that might be a fun introduction if, if, an, if somebody was just going to grab something else, because he's he takes a very, again, consciousness and material realities, planetary material realities to kind of do, play with each other, right? They go back and forth. Um, so his whole map or, or schema uh, or model of the evolution of consciousness is extremely contextual based on riverine, oceanic, med like Mediterranean, right, right? So like kind of an oceanic, um, uh, what do you call it? Transatlantic, right? And then he maps that with different forms of mathematical systems, but it's extremely geological and biospheric and bioregional. It's like, let's describe this particular epoch according to the material conditions the resources, and then the scope of the world. So if it's rebuilding our cities around rivers, what does that afford us, right? What does that look like? How does that shape, um, you know, a fertile crescent with uh, flood basins, et cetera, and river systems. Okay, that creates a whole different shape for how things are versus an oceanic culture. Um, so I think thinking with that mattering, you know, the mattering of meaning and the meaning of mattering is really, is a really good practice. So William Rowan Thompson, Transforming History is just like a fun one-off. And then the other, I think, would be McLuhan, um, who's also doing that. He's, he's looking at, uh, he, he has that quip that, that I'm sure Layman is familiar with. We look at the future through the rearview mirror. Um, and he's also playing with, again, how do technologies shape us? And then how do we shape the technologies, the communication mediums? And he has a sufficient enough a breadth of complexity talking about our history, like, hey, oral cultures had this complexity that we don't have anymore, right? Uh, literate cultures have new affordances that that enable abstract thinking and, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, again, a very kind of multidimensional, pliable model, which is nevertheless trying to think more ecologically and then also relate our material conditions and communication mediums with our consciousness and culture. So getting people into that practice, I think would be really good. So those are the two I throw out. Yeah, I love all that stuff, uh, especially in McLuhan, who's other than me, Canada's greatest philosopher. Um, I, think, I think that notion of the role that technologies and particularly communication technologies play in history and the way our worldviews are shaped is really important. McLuhan's not the only guy that does that, but he's prominent. Uh, I would suggest to this um, historically malnourished person you're talking about that they also read Richard Dawkins, Brett Weinstein, and think about the evolutionary dynamics of how choices are made over history. Uh, Right there's Marx looking at the material and economic structures. There's Wilhelm Reich looking at the what are the conditions in our bodies and domestic practices that make any kind of society healthy or not healthy. Uh, there's Jeremy Rifkin looking at the history of different energy systems. There's Stephen Wolfram looking at how the all of the computational options that are dialed into biology and neurology might already be present in computational space. Maybe we're not emerging or inventing them. Maybe we're just tuning them in or out. I think, um, you know, classic thinkers, Gebser, Hegel, big picture guys, 
Wilbur's Up From Eden is still a really interesting and rich book on anthropology. Um, there's a, a PBS podcast called Eons. And they do both human and natural history, but they're, they usually try to stay pretty up to date and they're nice little five to 10 minute snippets of something you didn't know that we've discovered recently has actually been going on on this planet. Nietzsche's Use and Abuse of History for Life presents three different styles of appropriating and building models of time. Really interesting, dense, provocative text. Uh, but also, meditate deeply or take psilocybin in a museum or in an ancient site. Like, don't trust the sources of information. It's not all going to be in books. You might discover something they haven't noticed yet. Uh, so open yourself up to the experiential possibilities of what it's like to I mean, for all you know, you have been alive for a billion years and you've been through all these things within yourself. What a way to end. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, thanks for agreeing to do this. And I think this is a really fruitful chat that will hopefully make everyone a little bit pissed off and also very happy. So uh, yeah, maybe we can do something like this again. And um, ahui ho. Thank thanks, you. Ryan. Big love. Love you all. Yep. Okay. Lots of pleasure. Nice to talk with you guys.